May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to Bridging the Gap with Tariq Alameen. You can keep up with us on social media. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at BTG with T-I-E. That's BTG with T-I-E. And uh, take a moment. Take a moment to subscribe to the podcast. You will find us wherever you get yours at, at BTG with T-I-E. And before we get started, we want to thank a sponsor of our CIOGC. That's the Council of Islamic Organizations of Greater Chicagoland for their continued support. And you can get more info about them at CIOGC.org. All right, family. Uh, today, I am happy to have joining me in studio. Um, I'm going to say she's an icon. Yeah, she's making faces, but I'm. <laughs> but for a number of reasons, as a first, uh, in a very substantive way, uh, Cook County State's Attorney Kim Fox. She is the first African American uh, elected to that position, and she is joining us, taking time out of her schedule to talk with us about many and various things. So, welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. It's a lot that's been going on. It's busy. Yeah. Yeah. Very busy. (laughs) Your office is one of the largest of its nature in the United States. We're the second largest prosecutor's office in the country, second only to Los Angeles. We have about 800 lawyers who work for our office. And between the lawyers, the administrative staff, and investigators, we have about 1,300 people who work for us. 1,300? Yes. Okay. All right. And within that, um, how does the breakdown of services uh, and and how does how does that uh, work itself out? So, as a prosecutor's office, we have you know one huge mandate, which is public safety. And so, about five hundred of our of the eight hundred attorneys work on issues related to to criminal justice, crime, and violence. Mm-hmm. And so, they prosecute felony offenses, everything from trespassing on someone's property to drug possession to first degree murder, and everything in between. Uh, last year, we had about 35,000 felony cases that came through and about 250,000 misdemeanor cases. So we do almost 300,000 criminal cases a year. And on the other side, we have the civil unit, which is responsible for representing the county and all manner of litigations. So we defend the county whenever the county is sued. We also do our own appeals. We do child support enforcement. We do juvenile justice work. Um, we do workers' compensation, medical malpractice, and all things in between. Okay. All right. So that's quite a bit. That's quite a yeah. bit. Now, what most people don't really know or what they, I think, have been able to see under your leadership is that there is a potential for more than just a punitive response uh, to crime. Could you talk a bit about that and why that has been um, and how important that is? I think what people have to realize is that when we talk about crime and violence, communities that are healthy, that are thriving, um, that have opportunities for the people who live there have less violence. Right. They absolutely have less violence. And so it's been my position that that should be our goal. Our goal should be for healthy, thriving communities um, that keeps us all safe. And the way that you're able to achieve that is by looking at the whole person that comes before you, victim and defendant. And saying to yourself, is what we're doing in in this situation, is what we're doing in this case going to help this person reintegrate in our communities and keep us safe? And a punitive response only doesn't do that. A punitive response is just about the punishment. 
it's not about how we can ensure that that person doesn't do it again. If you don't meet the needs of the people who come before you, you're almost guaranteed that you're going to see them again. So someone who has a drug addiction problem, for example, if you prosecute them and punish them for not kicking their drug addiction, um, they're still going to have a drug addiction. And they're going to come out, and then they're going to do drugs again. And then we're going to punish them again. We should be thinking to ourselves, how do we stop the underlying causes that have you there? Because if we treat your addiction, if we treat what is happening with you, you are less likely to engage in criminal behavior, and then we're all safer for it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we've been throwing around the, the term restorative justice. We've been using that term, I think, more and more. But I don't really think that people, I don't think a lot of people really understand what it is to be restored, Yeah. right? To, to have what's been taken from you uh, given back. And I see the uh, legislation that went into effect January 1st, uh, which expunged, what, 11,000 individuals immediately? Oh, the marijuana relief, yes. Yeah. Now, I see that, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. I see that as the first step in, in restoration, not restoration in and of itself, right? right? Because we think about the history of Chicago, you know, going back to the Great Migration, we think about redlining, and we think, we think about communities that have often been defined by a lack of services, uh, oppressive uh, relationships with, uh, with police um, that have been, you know, just underserved and neglected. So the state that these communities have existed in, they have never been whole. That's right. Really been whole. Um, how can efforts like this legislation, what can it do to spark uh, a movement to really bring about, you know, real wholeness? So I think the first thing that it does is it acknowledges the harm that was caused. I don't think you can restore anything if you don't acknowledge that there was a harm that was there in the first place. Right. And so what the cannabis legislation did was now that cannabis is, use is legal um, and people are going to be able to buy it and, and the government is taxing it and there will be people who profit from it, you then have to say, well, what about the people who were profiting before it became legal? And the enforcement of the laws, you know, the war on drugs, if you will, the war on cannabis, if you will, was disproportionately impacting black communities, poor black communities. Mm -hmm. And if we now are reconciling that, okay, it's okay to sell it now, but we've devastated communities with incarceration and convictions, and we don't do anything to remedy some of that harm because some of it is generational. You know, once someone gets a conviction, It impacts their ability to get a job, to get housing, to get student aid. And if you are locked out, if you have children, that locks them out. Mm -hmm. And so for us, the restoration piece of it is one, owning the harm. You know, I was very much involved in the crafting of this legislation, very much involved in pushing for the vacating of convictions because it was prosecutors across this country who went down to capitals in their states and said, more penalties, more penalties, more penalties, knowing um, that those penalties were directed at black and brown people. Mm-hmm. And so I felt that it was responsible. One, restoration requires me as a prosecutor to say that we've done harm. And then this is the first step of removing a barrier to be able to get gainful employment or an education. But we still want to be able to have people participate in a legal economy 
to be able to provide for their family. So this was just step one. Um, did you ever see yourself in the position uh, that you're in now? What part? <laughs> <laughs> could somebody have told you, could somebody have told you um, as you were a, a, a law student that this is what is ahead of you, that you're going to be the Cook County State's Attorney. You're going to be leading uh, the second largest um, uh, prosecutorial agency, you know, in, in, in the United States. No, I never, I don't, I didn't even aspire for that. You know, I, I grew up in a really, you know, challenging conditions, right? I grew up in public housing. And even when we left public housing, you know, I moved around a lot as a kid. You know, I was homeless when I was 16 for about six months. And so my goal was to always not be broke, right? And there was no, <laughs> there was no conditions on that. I just wanted to, like, have a place that was mine and to not worry about, you know, red notices coming in the mail. I just wanted to not be broke. And I wanted to make my mother and my grandmother proud, right? And and so I didn't expect to be in public service. You know, I did workers' comp defense for nine months after law school. You know, okay. the, the insurance company yeah. lured me. You know, they flew me out for interviews. And I was like, oh, this is the key to not being broke. Right. I did that for nine whole months and was like, this is horrible. Um, and I could pay my bills, but it didn't feel good. Right. And I left there and went to the public guardian's office representing children in our foster care system. And it was in doing that work where I wasn't being enriched um, in my bank account, but was really being enriched in my soul. Mm-hmm. I was meeting my clients who were children who were some infants all the way up until 21 who were no different than me, who I saw the chance for me to be an embodiment of what they could be. And there's something far more filling than that. Then I went to the state's attorney's office. And I'll tell you, you know, when I was in the office, I always thought if I was in charge, I would do this. If I was in charge, I would do that. Why don't we do this? Mm-hmm. Um, but didn't dare enough to dream that it would be possible to be the state's attorney. Mm. Um, have you had an opportunity to see some of those uh, young folk that you uh, represented uh, later yeah. on in life? I have, um, and it's been bittersweet. You know, I've seen, you know, I had, I had a client who was a teenage mom who was in the system because her mother had abandoned her, and then she had a baby that came into care. And it took her a long time to be able to, to get her child back. So watching the cycle Right, the the cycle of uh, of poverty and entanglement in the Department of Children and Family Services. I saw another one of my clients who, you know, another heartbreaking story. Mom passed away um, of AIDS. You know, stepfather was abusive and broke up their family. She had two younger siblings who were adopted, and she wasn't who I saw in the pages of People magazine a couple years ago. She was a nurse and was telling the story of the things that she had overcome. And so it's bittersweet uh, because the honest reality is it's rarer for them to become nurses and have professional degrees. Um, It is much more common that 
young people who come out of the foster care system um, live a life of struggle. And for me, that is requires us. It's not their failing. They they aren't. They it's not that they are not capable. Is that the systems that we've placed around them have set them up to fail? Um, in a city like Chicago, which mirrors many other uh, cities around the, uh, the country, where we have been separated along racial lines, yeah. uh, and then along lines of a, a class. Race, we still come back to race. And that's the one thing, more often than not, it seems like it's being kind of swept under the rug, like our reality has not been fashioned by the way we negotiated race, you know, how it has been used to, you know, subjugate uh, black and brown folks and, and, and given a, a privilege, which yeah. I know it makes me think about the term white fragility. Yeah. Um, and for, you know, for, for all of the, the white family that's listening, I hope you take a moment to really think about what that means, right? Yeah. If that sits with you some kind of way, it might be something that you need to to think about, right? It's not a it's not a pejorative, um, but but as race is kind of pushed out of the way, how do we really tackle these issues right. that are embedded deeply embedded in race? Um, if we can't name those things, you can't. I mean, I, the the reality is again you you can't fix something that you don't acknowledge is broken right you can't it, racism is a disease it is an absolute disease and it metastasizes it goes all over if you don't do anything to like root it out and if we're given cough syrup you know for the cough and the cough is like cancer right we're not doing anything Race is a really difficult conversation for people to have, even in a city like Chicago, even with the history that has been laid bare. Like, they're, they're just simple facts. Redlining is a fact, yeah. right? <laughs> that that happened, that, that blacks were denied the opportunity to get loans, the opportunity to live in certain communities. We were concentrating poverty. We were denying folks, and those have generational effects. So that they was rooted in race, we shouldn't be uncomfortable saying that. And that the people who then got the benefit of having blacks secluded in certain parts of the city, that those people who didn't, like, maybe I wasn't the architect architect of that. Maybe I didn't even know what was happening. I don't know what redlining was. And so I'm not in any way responsible for that. Actually, we all are responsible. You are responsible if you get a benefit um, that came at the hands of somebody else's oppression. And I think we, whether it's the criminal justice system, where I think we see it most profoundly, 86% of the people at Cook County Jail are black and brown, 86%. I think of when marijuana became legal in Illinois. The night before, there was all this news coverage, right? The, the dispensaries opened at 6 a.m. and they had coverage at 11 o'clock the night before. They put up tents. They had hand warmers. They had hot chocolate because the lines were forming. And when you looked at the lines, those lines were mostly people who don't look like the people at Cook County Jail. It was mostly young, white, middle-aged white men. And when we say whites, blacks, Latinos use marijuana at the same rate. That's right. But prosecution and incarceration is dramatically different. People are like, oh, that can't be true. 
You know who's not lining up for the first time at 11 o'clock the night before in January in Chicago to try marijuana for the first time? Right. First timers. Right. So the people we saw in those lines were people who were using marijuana this entire time. That's right. But weren't being prosecuted. That's a race issue. That's race. And you can call it whatever else you want to call it. When I look at people jubilant and drinking hot chocolate and buying edibles, I'm saying to myself, what about the people from our neighborhoods who've sat in prisons and now have records that don't have, weren't welcome with such jubilance? Right. And who came out of those communities that were dispossessed, those communities Absolutely. that were, you know, already struggling to keep themselves together. Absolutely. And, and when we talk about gentrification and redlining and, and like, I grew up in Cabrini and, I, and I, I tell this story, it fires me up every time I tell it. I grew up, you know, 624 West Division, right? We didn't have a mainstream grocery store. We didn't have, you know, health clinics around. There was like one clinic and everybody had a green card back in the day. Yeah. And the line to get into the clinic was something special. Um, it was hardcore concentrated poverty. The school that was in Cabrini was called Schiller. It's now called Skinner. Skinner is one of the best school uh, elementary schools in the city. It is ranked number one. Okay. When it was Schiller, it was not. Right. It was not. When they tore down the towers because the recognition that this public housing policy was a failure, they relocated all of these black families and far-flung across the city, south side, south suburbs. Now, they are so flush with resources. When I say we didn't have a grocery store, they got grocery stores, they have salons, they have urgent care, they have all, they have so much that they even have an indoor skydiving place. Wow. An indoor skydiving place um, on Division and Halston. You have so many resources that you got people pretending to jump out of planes <laughs> in buildings. That's how flush you are with resources. Yeah. But then you go to Lawndale. You go to Inglewood, where we were applauding. I'll never forget this. When they built the, the Whole Foods there. Yes. A few years ago, and there was like this whole ticker tape. And I said, when should we be grateful just to be able to get fresh fruit? What a when they got indoor skydiving. Mm -hmm. That's race. That's the, that, is, that is the non-acknowledgement of what happens when you deprive certain communities and you make the conversation about their lack of will, their lack of ethic, their lack of pull themselves up and not the historical legacy of redlining and gentrification um, and oppression. Now, we have, obviously, uh, just what you laid out just shows how your, um, your environment, it can shape your expectations uh, and, and, and influence when you, think is a, when, when you think celebration is warranted. That's right. right? I mean, because if you grew up in a community where you didn't have That's a right. grocery store, Right, to have one come, you feel like we'd have made it now. That's We're right. being recognized. Not really understanding that maybe it wasn't put there for you. That's right. Yeah. yeah, I I think one of the best things that happened to me, you know, I talk about being from Cabrini a lot, mm -hmm. is that I've been able to live a, a bunch of different experiences so I, I know better, yeah. right? So I lived in abject poverty, right? My mother was 17 when she had my brother, 18 when she had me. We were on the government rolls. We were on public aid. I was surrounded by poverty. We moved one mile north to Lincoln Park so that I could go um, 
to a really good grammar school. The sharing of books that was happening in Cabrini and in, in, in Lincoln Park, you had your own book. You were taught Spanish, you know, starting in kindergarten. I got there in third grade, and they didn't care that I didn't know it for th- three years. Your expectation is here. I saw firsthand as an eight-year-old mm-hmm. what the expectations were for me versus what they were up the street. You know, I have lived, you know, in adulthood, having gone back to Lincoln Park and my husband going jogging one night and saying, we can't stay here. You know, people were grabbing their purses, clutching their bags. I had thought I would made it because I could afford to come back and live in Lincoln Park. I mean, I work for the insurance company. <laughs> can't no more. Uh, <laughs> and we had, to, we had to leave. I yeah. now live in, you know, a suburb that has some measure of affluence because I wanted my kids to go to a good school. I didn't want it to depend on where we were. And I'm watching what my children who, who have grown up privileged, so I'm, I'm watching their privilege. I'm parenting privileged children. That's I'm a living space. in an affluent neighborhood. Yeah. But I also go back to Cabrini, right? And I know that there are kids in neighborhoods that are just like the one I grew up in who are being asked to know and learn the same things that my children are. Right. And it hurts because I know too much. I know that that kid who is taking the same SAT, my, my oldest is taking the SAT in a couple of weeks. My daughter doesn't have to worry about, is someone abusing her? Where is she going to sleep? Does she have enough food? How she deals with her anxiety? Um, how she did, she, she has her own teenage angst. God bless her. Yeah. But she doesn't have all those extra things that she's competing with the kid in the neighborhood for the same thing, and, and who might be just as smart as my baby. Right. But because she's carrying all of that, there's an arrogance. If you don't know that other piece, mm-hmm. then a parent will tell you, my baby's just smarter. Right. There's an arrogance that comes with that. There's a, that privilege piece. So it's like, no, why, why should my baby be punished? I know too much. I know that I get here from all the circumstances I have. The starting line for me was 50 yards back from where it starts for someone who has that privilege. And so I understand the hustle. Um, And I also understand that when our people don't make it, it's not because they don't have it. You being in a a position that you are, a position of of great authority and, and, and power, having a realization of, you talk about how your daughter doesn't have to, you know, I think about my own children. We call them little rich kids because even though we're not rich, but that's you know, right. But, I am not rich. Yeah, but yes. but but having access to a, a great school system, not having to worry about issues that so many folks who are filling the jails, filling the prisons, these are the concerns that have shaped them, and have gone unaccounted for, uh, and and just ignored quite often by people who have had positions of authority, uh, been in positions where they could have taken those those uh, things uh, factors into consideration. How important is that? And do you think that that example is something that is going to be taken up by other folks that are, you know, other elected officials? Yeah. It's my lens, right? I, I, I think we have to, again, have honest conversations that people approach the work that they do in whatever profession that they have with the lens by which they see the world. Right. And historically, 
in a role like this, you don't, there is not a state's attorney from Cook County that I'm aware of who came from public housing, or at least not from Cabrini, right. um, who has that perspective. What I know, I've been a victim of crime. You know, I have suffered my own trauma. Um, and I also know perpetrators of crime. I also know, you know, I, I talk a lot about my grandmother who was one of the biggest influences in my life. My grandmother prayed for me just as hard and fervently as she prayed for my cousin who was in prison. Yeah, We shared the same maternal lineage. And what I know is that somebody still loves those people who've done harm. I've also seen my cousin who did time in prison try to be a good father to his children. I've seen him try to be a good brother and a good son that I knew he had made choices that I didn't agree with, but his whole humanity wasn't washed up. Right. And so that is the lens by which I see it, that yes, we should hold people accountable for their actions. And when you cause harm, you should own the harm that you caused um, and be responsible. But I also believe that there's the power of redemption. I, I have done things in my life that I'm grateful to have not been caught for, mm-hmm. um, but also know that I'm not perfect. And that because I'm in such proximity to people, who have hurt and been hurt. When we say hurt people, hurt people, that's just not a slogan. Like yeah, that's, that's real. That's real. Yeah. So it, 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 it is the lens by which I see this work, where I cannot view this as a wholly punitive exercise, that I believe we have to be holistic, that I believe that the reason that we've had so much bad criminal justice policy is because we have had people in these positions who come from a background where they don't understand these communities, where they live in that privilege, and that it is reared in judgment, mm-hmm. us versus them, good versus evil, and then that dictates how you respond. Mm-hmm. If you don't do this work driven um, by a commitment to those communities, that's what you get. I, Dr. King's quote about power, mm-hmm. power without love, is reckless and abusive. And I think we've seen a criminal justice system that has been driven without love. I would would, uh, even go a bit further and say just in general, right, our society, um, that love is quite often absent when it comes to servicing the needs of the people. Um, You know, whether folks are, uh, I was listening to a news report, uh, and I think this was a, a a bit of time ago, but there was a, a suggestion to take like $5 billion from, uh, from Medicaid. Yeah. Like, you're going to attack vulnerable, communi- yeah. you know, vul- vulnerable uh, uh, populations, but we still have the money for war. And I couldn't help but think when you mentioned yeah. Dr. King, um, I think I read this in the book by uh, uh, Dr. Michael Eric Dyson, mm-hmm. in his book, April uh, 4th, uh, 1968. He talked about his autopsy. And he said that when they performed the autopsy, they looked at his internal organs and that they showed, uh, it looked as if he were a man 20 years older, yeah. right? The stress yeah. that, that accompanied, you know, his, his life's work. So I got to ask you a question because you, you wear yeah. this well, yeah. right? Looking at you yeah. does not look like what I've been through. you are dealing with what I can only imagine. Yeah. You're doing well. and, and and also some of the the public 
um, you know, uh, some of the public attacks. Yeah. How are you? How, how do you? How do you manage that? Yeah, I mean, I try my best to not look like what I've been through, um, <laughs> and I, I. The blessing of being of a people of struggle, um, you know, my mother, God bless her, you know, passed away at fifty eight. But people would always mistake us for sisters, right? Mm-hmm. My grandmother passed away at 88 and looked 70. Um, so melanin is a gift. It is. I mean, I mean, it's just thank you, God. I mean, we got to be out, like, picking cotton, <laughs> absorbing that sun. Um, the generational, like, smoothness of the skin is, is, is helpful. Yeah. Um, but I, I've seen women before me struggle, right, not as publicly, mm-hmm. not as – I think about the – I'm in the season of thinking of my mother a lot. Um, like I said, my oldest daughter is turning 17, and I think I look at her and I'm like, I can't imagine you with a kid, yeah. right? But my mother was your age when she had my brother. Um, and the struggles that she had, and I have to root myself in that this is sometimes really painful work. Um, and painful not just for the personal attack, Right? Like, I, th- there's a part where I was unprepared for how visceral it could be. But painful when you do love a, a community, when you do have such love, and feel that the system doesn't want you to have that. I tell people, they say all the time, the criminal justice system is not broken. It is doing what it is designed to do. And I absolutely believe that. I think the pain for me is I think I'm a screw in the system where I don't fit. I'm the broken piece. And so I do. I've I've stressed a lot. I'm sure, you know, my organs are aging. um, Because I I don't think if you do this work right, I mean, I could have came in and just did nothing, just was status quo Mm -hmm. and probably been a lot less stressed. I, I'm positive that if we had stopped doing some of the things we were doing, people would not have as visceral. Now, my mere presence is disruptive. The fact yes. that you have a black person in this role is disruptive. Mm-hmm. And I, there's a piece that you'll take for that. But me saying, listen, I'm not going to continue policies that harm communities drew a lot of fire. But that's what I'm here for. I don't know how much you can talk about yeah. this or not. We looked at the Jesse Smollett um, instance, instance from very different lenses. I think black folks and white folks saw this completely different. And I'm not leaving out anybody else in the family. I'm just speaking, you know, in, in just binaries here, black and whites. <laughs> how often is that veil being rung? And do you expect that, that you're going to have to continue to hit, especially as, you know, elections Oh, absolutely. I mean, listen, I I understand this was a really public case, and, yeah. and there was a lot of media attention, and people cared about it. And for those who didn't understand how the criminal justice system work, and you see something that you don't understand, um, it could be very jarring, right? And so I don't bemoan people having curiosity about it um, at all. Mm-hmm. A year ago, I stood at the City Club of Chicago and made a proclamation two proclamations. One, that I wasn't going to 
prosecute marijuana cases anymore and that we were going to vacate convictions. And secondly, that our office was going to take the default position that if you have a nonviolent crime and you have a no violence in your background, no criminal history of violence, that we would divert you, mm-hmm. that we would prioritize our resources after going after violent crime. And in the course of the last three years that I've been in office, we have done that thousands of times, thousands of times. And so I think for some, the focus on this particular case, you know, where we used an alternative to traditional prosecution, where we said do community service, forfeit your bond, um, and stay out of trouble, seemed jarring. Because, again, we have a punitive system. And here is someone who made a lot of people angry people who felt like he besmirched our city's good name, um, that he lied and used police resources. And I won't disagree with any of that. Um, but the question is, was he dangerous? All right. Was anyone hurt? What do, what do we want to get out of it? Now, here's someone who probably will have a hard time finding work. Here's someone, and we talk about restorative justice, when you talk about what, 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 what will we have accomplished? He can't get work. Um, is the subject of punchlines near and far. Uh, you know, the Juicy Smollett from Dave Chappelle will, will live for decades. Um, he is someone, you know, is not welcome in the city of Chicago. No. Uh, in all neighborhoods. Yeah. What does justice look like? What does justice look like? What What is it that the conviction would have done, you know, and, you know, we'll answer for that. Well, we will answer because I'm a public servant, and that is my responsibility in everything that I do to be able to make sure that as we carry out our mandate that people understand it. And in this case, we didn't do a good job. I own that. I didn't do a good job in explaining to folks the hows and whys in this case and leading, leaving that doubt um, gave people pause, and it's my responsibility to answer for that. Well, we also saw... A, a very visceral um, response from the uh, uh, police union. Yeah, I, I don't know if relationship is the right word, yeah. or, word or not, but how do you, how do you uh, deal with that? Well, you know, first I've made clear, you know, that the men and women that I work with in law enforcement who are out there on the ground, you know, engaged in communities have very dangerous jobs, and I have a respect for the work that they do. The FOP, the Fraternal Order of Police Leadership, is not reflective of the people that we work with every day, right? There was, there's a, there are the men and women who do the work, right. and then there's the political piece of the union that represents those folks. And I have met a number of law enforcement um, professionals who have said to me that they have been embarrassed by the way that Kevin Graham um, and his team have operated, that they are not reflective of the whole. Our office requires us to work with police every day. They are witnesses on every single case that we have. We don't get to prosecute a case unless the police bring it. And so we need them to be credible. We need them to be legitimate. We need them to be, when necessary, held accountable for wrongdoing. I, my success in this work requires them to be successful. And so we negotiate that relationship every day. It's not perfect. Um, we don't always agree. But the professionals on the ground who do that work, we work well. For the leadership of the FOP, what was incredible to me, if we cut all the noise, you know, they had to say, well, this isn't just about Jesse Smollett. There are three things we don't like that she's done. Mm-hmm. 
one, we don't like that she doesn't prosecute marijuana offenses. And it was like, I get that. I see that. Why don't we just make it legal? Okay, so let's just scratch that off the list. <laughs> two, we don't like that she doesn't prosecute people for driving on suspended licenses. And we stopped prosecuting people for driving on suspended licenses because they couldn't pay their tickets. Right. Just last week, governor of the state signed the License to Drive Act, which says the state will no longer suspend people's licenses for failure to pay tickets. And in fact, will be reinstating 55,000 driver's licenses across the state. Okay. So when did this happen? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh just the bill was voted on last year. The governor just signed uh, the bill on January 17th. So January 17th, Governor Pritzker signed a bill that says uh, they will no longer suspend. The state, Secretary of State, will no longer suspend driver's licenses for failure to pay fees. Wow. And I did it first. Back, I stopped prosecuting these cases in 2017. But in 2020... Wow. The governor signed this, and 55,000 Illinoisans, 55,000, will get their licenses back. But I remind you, the FOP leadership was like, she won't prosecute them. Well, now they're not suspended. Now they get their licenses back. So check that off. So that's two of the three. Right. And the third was bond reform. They did not believe that I was uh, appropriate in advocating that poor people who don't pose a threat to the public shouldn't be held in jail because they're poor. That's, that was their whole platform against me. And to hear that they are not reflective of, let's say, a majority or uh, or some of. I would even say the majority. I, I think that the, the behavior that we have seen by their lead, the FOP leadership, yeah. not the police department, and I think we have to be really clear about that, mm-hmm. um, has been for some, you know, disappointing. These people are out there putting their lives on the line. Right. You think that they wanted it to be trivialized about an actor charged with a low-level offense? That this is this is the most pressing thing that's happening to the men and women of the Chicago Police Department is Jesse Smollett? Like they they want to make sure that they have proper mental health services. The suicide rate yes. among law enforcement professionals the divorce is rate. up. The divorce rate. Yeah. The you know, making sure they have proper equipment, making sure that they that they are trained in mental health, CIT, so that when they come across someone, you know, their instinct isn't to, like, shoot. They, this is what is pressing to them. But that their leadership is out there holding marches, marches, by the way, that had white nationalist groups attending. They don't want that. I, I was just going to ask, so those, th- those three things that, that he's talking about um, – Aren't these just simply at their core racist? I think at their core, if you grow up in a profession that believes here law and order, I think it's at the core we have to think about Which what law and, law and order means in this country, yeah. like control what how, what that means. Yeah. But I think for a lot of people who come into the work, they don't think as critically about what is the origin of that, right? What are the origins of why we do what we do? Someone said the other day. They were making an example. They were like, rule of thumb, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, I took a women's studies class. Yes. And what I know is you shouldn't say rule of thumb. And the person said, well, why not? And I was like, well, rule of thumb refers to the thickness of the stick by which you were allowed to beat your wife. That's right. And the person was like, whoa, I did, I did not know that. Um, someone the other day, we were 
posing for a photo at the women's march and someone said, oh, it's a money shot. And I was like, oh, you don't want to say money shot. Money shot has its origins in pornography. And, the, and so, and the person who said it was like, oh my God. I mentioned that to say that there are people who engage in practices without thinking or knowing the origins by which they do it. And so they aren't actively being racist, right? Like they are participating in racist practices without knowing that this is what it is. The person who says, you know, rule of thumb wasn't talking about it's okay to beat your wife. Like I just grew up saying rule of thumb. But at its core, yes. We're talking about the beneficiaries of bail reform, of marijuana relief, and fines and fees are overwhelmingly poor black and brown people. Yeah. Overwhelmingly. Yeah. Um, so what's next for you? How long will you, will you continue to, to push this fight and lead the um, uh, Cook County State's Attorney's Office? Do you have your, uh, do you have your eyes set on, on any other Listen. challenge? I, I serve at the will of the people. I serve at the will of the people. It is. It has been my distinct pleasure for all of the the aging of my uh, organs. Um, <laughs> it, it has been my distinct pleasure to do this work. Um, but I serve at the will of the people, and it's certainly my hope that the people believe in the vision that I've had for this office and the track record um, that I that I that I stand on. I'm really proud of the work that we've done. And so it, it is my hope to continue to serve in this capacity. And I, you, you asked me in the beginning, did I ever see myself doing this? I didn't. Um, and so I'm one of those people who are led by um, purpose, where I'm supposed to be. Sure. And so it's hard for me to say what comes after I fulfill my time as state's attorney. It's really hard. I don't know that I will have a job as meaningful and as fulfilling as being an advocate for communities um, that have been impacted by crime and violence. Um, but I'll find it um, mm-hmm. and enough to not get, you know, red notices in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> well, hope, hopefully, um, since you are, you are willing to continue doing this work, hopefully you will continue to do the work. Uh, because it's not just about having the title, having a position. Uh, it matters how you go about conducting business, how, you know, the spirit that you bring to it. And what I'm hoping also is that, and we didn't get a chance to talk about this, but maybe at another time, yeah. um, you got some sisters out there with you that are also, yeah. uh, uh, was it um, in Maryland? Oh, and, Maryland, um, St. Louis, yeah. Orlando. Yeah, the sisters in the struggle. We, we yeah. stand together. So how important it is for that type of spirit to, to really start to spread, right? Because if all of our, you know, if all of the, the elements of government that we have, if they were led by folks who work looking at, thinking about what are the factors that exist for the people that we're serving, right? And it was not about just trying to check boxes off. Yeah. And it was really about serving people, then we would, we would be so much better off. So I'm hoping that, um, I'm hoping that's what the result of this is, that we just had yeah. the beginnings. Well, bring so. me back in the next term. Absolutely. And uh, we'll talk about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to, to come in. And, and as always, just just be real. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. All right, family, we thank you all for tuning in. 
Uh, remember, keep up with us on social media at BTG with TIE, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And also take a moment to subscribe to the podcast at BTG with TIE, wherever you get yours at. I'm your host and producer, Tari Gullamine. And I'm going to leave you as we greeted you. May the peace that only God can give be upon you.